Hi, I'm Sarah Markoff. And I'm Michael Wise, and we're on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's an easy listening station. right now. Why? You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. The one I'm doing. On the Visceral Change podcast. All right, everybody. We are back on the chopping block. Thank you all for tuning in, as always, in this brand new episode. We are here with some of my favorite people in the world, literally, because they are not in the United States as far as their profession goes, but they are sort of centered and based at the moment in the Netherlands. And so we are here with uh, Sarah Markov and Michael Wise. Sarah, you are a professor of theoretical high energy astrophysics. Is this correct? Okay, at the University yeah, yeah, of Amsterdam. Get it specific. Gotta <laughs> get it specific, right. <laughs> Uh, and uh, Michael, you are the sort of general and scientific director of ESRON uh, in the Netherlands Institute of Space Research, correct? That's right. Among other things, so I don't want to limit that just to who you all are, but I just want folks to know who is in front of us. We have some of the brightest minds in the world, and I think we have some, some value to learn today and a lot of fantastic discussions. So first off, thank you all for joining us. I, my first question is, how much do you wish you were still in the United States right now? with his leadership. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. Uh, you know, uh, we don't. <laughs> Maybe a bit of survivor's guilt. Okay. Uh, you know, like. Yeah, I, I mean, look, all joking aside, you know, living abroad as Americans is always hard. You miss, you miss the, your country, you miss your family, but you also see it from a distance and it's hard to like what you see right now. Sure. And I think it's a good time to, you know, draw attention to the fact there's a lot of misinformation and believe it or not, you know, like paying your taxes gives you things and we get great healthcare and there's, you know, a lot of um, great education, a lot of benefits that we really have come to enjoy living in Europe that I kind of wish would be extended to the U S you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, my short time abroad, you know, I've seen that there was a point in time where, you know, uh, being American nationally, had a had a different effect on the people you were interacting with but now it feels like it's almost like a a negative almost it, it goes up and down i lived in germany uh under the bush years and that was a real up and down right because it was mm -hmm. kind of down and then 9 11 happened i was living in germany when that happened and then we went up for a bit because everyone felt really sympathetic sure. and kind of didn't do too well with using that sympathy and we went down again right yeah. And then right. under Obama, it was, we, we were doing very good internationally. Sure. I mean, the esteem that people have for the U.S. went way up. And now we're, you know, so it kind of goes in this right. cycle. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting when you think of it that way, you know. And, and when you're confined, really, for whatever reason, to just the United States, you don't get to have that rich perspective, which is, which is super helpful. So, so let's jump right into it. Um, so I did some research on the, just the nature of astrophysics, right? And... Uh, the overall sciences in the U.S. And, you know, Kentucky is by and large nowhere to be found. <laughs> so, and Minnesota does a little bit better, but it, it doesn't average uh, as a whole in the top, right? So, so my first question is... They're really good at milk and butter technology. So my first question is, seeing as how the two of you hail from each state respectively. Um, 
tell us a little bit about your journey to the sciences and in particular astrophysics, given your locale and how you came up. You wanna take that one first? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was a kind of a little bit of a random walk. You know, it wasn't a preordained thing by any means for me. I didn't grow up in a scientific family with a lot of exposure to that stuff. Um, and it was really through sci-fi and comics. I mean, I, I get asked this all the time, but that's pretty much the answer is that I got exposed to ideas about the universe and what's in it and all the cool possibilities out there that got me thinking. Mm -hmm. And I was actually really more of a creative. I was studying art and I thought I was gonna go to art school, but I was drawn to the sciences. I just didn't have like a model for how I, you know, was that even a possibility? But I got kind of lucky in the sense that, um, that I had done okay in like math and science, but mostly in this art program. So I, I sort of had my foot in two doors and I finally just thought, well, you know, I'll try to do science and I can always go back to art. It's probably better to try to do that. And I took the leap literally really at the last minute and just decided to try to study science and, um, and then never thought I would finish, but it, it stuck, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, and for me, I think uh, there's similarities. I, I think that, you know, the, the sci-fi uh, comic book uh, stuff when you're a kid, that, that, that definitely was a, a big theme for me. And I'm a little bit older than her. So <laughs> I actually watched, you know, Man Walk on the Moon, you know, as a kid, right? And that was really, you know, really, you know, locked it in. So, I mean, I wanted to be a, a scientist or an astronaut or something like that, you know, even from a very early age. Of course, I didn't really know what that meant. Sure. But uh, I think a big departure for me compared to Sarah is uh, I grew up, uh, I'm very much a gearhead. And like I grew up, like, you know, I was really um, uh, impacted by my grandfather who was an auto mechanic. And I spent a lot of time, you know, in, working with him in his shop. And, and so like, the technology and the gear, you know, the spaceships and, and, you know, that really, you know, drew me in. So, I mean, I, doing the science, you know, the, you, you know, how we use those tools to do the science is, is, is something that I almost came to later, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've always been, I've always been more on the, the sort of technical side. And so that, I mean, most of what I do these days is, is build telescopes. Sure, so. sure. Now I know for a fact, at least in my circles, um, that hard sciences, sciences in general, especially um, astro and physics, there's this perception um, that you you have to either you have it or you don't. Like you don't you don't you don't learn this down the road. Yeah. Um, dismantle that for me or or affirm it. I, I totally disagree. Okay. Yeah. I totally disagree. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, well, I, I could say so many things about that. Look, I, you know, you're, you, you know, pe some people are better at some things than others, right? And but you know, I've never considered myself like some super genius. I've never considered myself the smartest guy in the room. You know, and I, I've accomplished you know the things I have. I think just by trying to really being stubborn and working hard. But I, you know, and uh, yeah, and I think anybody can be a scientist. Yeah. I have like a couple things to say about this because I do a lot in terms of trying to change, you know, the system in, mm -hmm. from the inside in terms of increasing diversity. So I'm, I'm always thinking about this, right? right? And there's so many levels that you can think about this on. There's the reason why kids don't 
find an interest in math and science and how they get turned off to it because by nature kids are scientists right kids mm -hmm. are curious and they're testing stuff out and they're really drawn to this but there's so many messages that kids get from media from society about what it is to be a scientist and they're always showing some old you know white guy in a lab coat and mm -hmm. it often seems like a lonely endeavor maybe or you know and that's just the complete opposite right so you have to work with kids to kind of change their attitudes and change the parents' attitudes about what this is all about. But right. then there's also no way to be, you know, there isn't just one way to be a scientist, right? There's like any career, there's a huge variety of skill sets and directions to go and some are more technical and some are more theoretical. Some yeah, scientists, absolutely. you know, don't use math on a daily basis. So it's not like you have to be brilliant at math. A lot of scientists, you know, don't use computers that much. I mean, so you find your way. And I think the only thing is you have to be curious. Mm -hmm. You have to be curiosity driven. I mean, we're both astrophysicists, right. you, know, uh, you know, in some sort of vague general sense. But we could not be more different in terms of the things that we're kind of interested in and that we sure. focus on in day to day. And, yeah, I got to say one of the things that, that I, this, this programming that she's talking about, that, that, that kids get, it doesn't stop. It does, I mean, it goes all the way up to after you get your PhD and you become, I mean, there are still, there are still these sort of old tropes that, that people get handed about, you know, what it means to be a scientist, what a scientist looks like, how they spend their time, and uh, what constitutes being a good scientist. Or, and it's all, it's all changing is the, the good side of that story. I mean, I, one of the things I love about the, the sort of current generation that's coming up is that they're throwing some of that stuff off and they're like, no, I want to, you know, I want to do this part of the time, but I want to do this the other part of the time. And, and I love to see that because when I was coming up, it was like you did this and you did this and you did this. Yeah. And if you didn't, you were a failure. There, and, and, you know, it's bullshit. Have, have you seen um, any of the talks by people like, I mean, Tana Joseph is a former uh, student. Um, well, I mean, she's still doing astrophysics, but she's moving more into also communicating about science. And she's from South Africa okay. originally. And she's a woman of color and she's talking about, you know, how science kind of became the way it is and the scientific method. And it's part of this conversation about decolonizing science, right? Mm. That can mean a lot of different things. But it's something where once, you know, it's like you put, you know, you take the glasses off, you sort of see the, that it's everywhere, this programming. And it was really developed in, you know, the, the colonial period, the 1700s, and then really kind of codified in the 1800s, sure. uh, this idea that science as it is was set up by men of leisure, you know, mm -hmm. upper class guys who lived in castles and had time and money to, you know, mess around with, you know, yeah. their labs and just, it was like a hobby. And so there's this built in attitude of like, you shouldn't be doing this for money. It should be the only thing you want to do with your life. You should be obsessed with it. Um, you and, should be willing to sacrifice anything for it. Right, exactly. So. You can, because you don't really have to worry about other things like eating and money. You know, someone takes care of all that for you. And the, 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 uh, the sense of working by yourself a little bit and, and um, you know, all of this is so built into the field. And it's changed. I mean, it yeah. is changing. It's like now it's about mm -hmm. collaboration. It's about yep. teams, you know, and she's in a project with, I don't know, 300 some. I mean, another project scientists. was 1,500, you know. Oh, <laughs> God. And, you know, that's a, that's a different way to do science. And, right. And, and it, that you didn't find even, even, you know, a few decades ago. Yeah, so. That's right. And that's the goal to to continue that evolution and and and, and keep expanding the field in, in that way. And 
and hopefully we have some folks who have agency in terms of access to power and change who are uh, more open to that than not. So we can actually maybe see some real concrete changes in, in our lifetimes. And uh, Sarah, you started talking a little bit about DEI. So I kind of want to jump to you and ask you a specific question in terms of that. Um, I can only imagine the journey for a, a woman going into the sciences, STEM, anywhere in this particular field. Um, I'd be interested to know um, sort of what was or what is your entry point uh, in the work of DEI specifically in the field of, of, of Astro? You know, when did you maybe start picking it up? What activated you? Was it a personal experience? Things of that nature. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, I think, um, I think I was oblivious to a lot of stuff. I think coming into it, I just thought things were the way it, were, it was. I mean, I was obviously um, one of the few women, when I studied physics, I mean, I was one of 10%. And it, it's changed now that in the US, it's more like probably one of, I think it's like 30% now. It's gotten better at the bachelor's level, mm -hmm. but it was about 10% where I was at. And then when I moved up the ladder, even to grad school, I was the only girl pretty much, you know, in, wow. in this program. And I've always been used to that. So, you know, I didn't question it. I didn't think a lot about it. And I, I think that I, when you talk to a lot of people, you get to a certain age where you look back and you start to realize like, oh, that was discrimination or that was sexist or whatever. And I didn't really twig to a lot of that as it was happening, except for a few very, very, you know, obvious cases that did happen. But most of the time it was just kind of like do my thing. And then, you know, as I got higher up the ladder, you, you know, I started to see more of this unfairness and inequity. And it wasn't necessarily so much happening to me as just everything around me and thinking about it. And then the other thing is, I just believe in fairness, right? Like, I, I think as a scientist, I can see numbers, right? And if you compare the distribution of people out on the street to the distribution of people in science, it's, it's radically different. And sure. there's only two ways you can really explain that. One is the bad way, which is, you know, the narrative that certain people don't have what it takes. Mm -hmm. We'll still hear people saying that, but that is really being phased out, you know, because I think there's nothing to support that. Right. And then there's the, the, obviously there's something in the system, there's gatekeeping, there's all sorts of, you know, stuff going on that, that has to be changed. And so I don't know, like I just, started wherever I could trying to, you know, you, I think one of the things you have to keep in mind is you can't change everything. Mm -hmm. You have to try to do stuff at the level that you have some access or power. Right. So, That's right. Uh, you know, trying to kind of, um, I can't think of the word now, but like, I'm a little bit of a like rebel rouser, you know, like trying <laughs> to fight the system. Right. Right. And, and let, so sitting with that really quickly, what, you know, so research shows that, the sort of the whitest field, at least in the United States, is actually law. Mm. Um, wow, but, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, interesting, right? But astronomy and, and, and physics isn't too far behind it. Um, it's not number yeah. one, not mm -hmm. quite sure if it's number two, but it's, you know, it's, it's worth the discussion. Extremely, so, yeah. so, so knowing this, right, and knowing you're that, the rabble-rouser type of person you are and having this lens of oppression that sort of maybe guides your work in DEI, um, what is... Let me see. How have you found people to 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 consider this discrepancy, and how have you found them to be uh, when confronted with some of these some of this this urgency to to maybe change um, as a field? 
Well, I think it's, I think the last few years has really uh, opened things up. You know, the conversations are finally being had, mm-hmm. which for a long time they weren't. Um, I have to preface this by saying, you know, of course, I've been in the Netherlands for 15 years. Of course. And the Netherlands are kind of like always about five to 10 years behind the U.S. I mean, it takes a, in a lot of different ways, good or bad. Um, but but the discussion around diversity has been very challenging because the Dutch in particular, you know, consider themselves like really non-racist, culturally open people. That's kind of the propaganda as well. Mm-hmm. And, may, you know, they are in some ways. Yeah, but there's not some enough. truth to it, of course. I mean, I always remind people apartheid's a Dutch word, right? I mean, that was from Afrikaans, which was a, you know, mm-hmm. Afrikaners were Dutch colonists, you know, and... Uh, Okay. And so, you know, that setup of like, you know, we're cool, everything's equal, you can be an immigrant or black or whatever, but just do it over there. That really extends to the European way of like yes. dealing with stuff. And, um, and so up to the level that Michael, you know, we'll talk about, I'm sure next, about even like within policy and our national funding agency, I would say we need to start moving beyond the gender thing and start looking at you know race and 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 social economic status and all this kind of stuff and they would literally just say well we don't really understand this so we're just going to stick with gender because we're kind of comfortable with talking about that yeah. and that was the thing that you know so first you pushed on gender for a while and i think that's the same in the u.s that it was a gender discussion but it opened up here much earlier right. to starting to talk about uh a race and so it really depends on where you are having this topic discussed. I think in the States, people really recognize that this is a big problem and there's been a lot of, of uh, actions and, and from the government level you know, down to, to grassroots, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I've been mainly just trying to port stuff over Sure. You know, best practice that I can port over and say, like, we can change it a little bit and apply it here, right? Right, but, right. Yeah, and, 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 and you make an interesting point about sort of the, the ways in which race discussions show up uh, or disparities uh, versus gender. And that is a question I do have um, and that I want to come back to because I, I want to hear both of your perspectives on it. But, I, but Michael, I do want to ask you a specific question. Okay. A, uh, so this, there's a July 8th article right, from space.com. Uh, sort of that went on to say that, and I'll quote, systemic racism is wholly pervasive in astrophysics. And it goes on to say that, quote, we need white males to speak up and call out any lack of diversity or inclusion, end quote. Now, you and I um, have had off, off the cuff a sort of a, a very good conversation about workplace dynamics uh, in terms of diversity and inclusion with respect to managing people. Given your position, um, how receptive have you found the field to be in terms of acknowledging and addressing some of these workplace disparities while tying in the the policy concepts that Sarah just mentioned? Yeah, that's a tricky one to answer. Uh, I wouldn't say resistance. Okay. Um, that might be too strong a word, but at the policy, at the poli- at the higher levels, it, I think, you know, Sarah put her finger on it, that they've been very focused on, again, and, and I, in my brain, I kind of want to make a distinction between what's going on in the field, what I see happening in the field in the U.S. versus the Netherlands, because let's face it, it's very different. And, right. and they, they are, the U.S. is ahead of Europe in that sense. Um, it, it's not resistance, it's, it's a blind spot for them, I think is the truth. Yeah. So, 
and and the the initial reaction, you know, to being having a blind spot pointed out is often like confusion or, or or even you know if not outright rejection then at least an initial recoil and so i think i over the years uh, as i've sort of assumed uh, increasingly larger management roles and you know leadership roles this comes on the table as it, it's it's part of the deal right this is this is what comes uh, on your your to-do list as somebody in one of those positions that you have to acknowledge deal with Try to fix, etc. Whether you, whether you, you know, whether you, uh, you know, it's part of your sort of personal day-to-day -day agenda or not is, is secondary. And and I've just seen that the it's always on the list. These issues are always on the to-do list, e even at the highest levels, but they're always at the bottom, That's or, right. or they always get pushed off the. I mean, I I literally, you know, I had very high, you know, management uh, sort of uh, team meetings with other institute directors in, in, across the Netherlands, and and we've got all the stuff that we need to get through. We meet every month. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is on the agenda every single month, mm -hmm. and it almost never gets sufficient airtime. Right? It, there's always some crisis of it, and again, there's no ill intent. That's right. It's a just, parent it's just not the priority it's just right. not the priority it's yeah, just right. not the priority and you know okay some weeks something's on fire and you could say yeah okay we really got to put that fire out i mean sometimes that's just the case of course but, but 12 months out of 12 no <laughs> i don't you know yeah. that that's 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 a there's a then there's then there's something deeper at work so and frustration and so i want to piggyback off that a little bit and, and and maybe we can expand some you you mentioned that you know you may not you may not label it as a level of resistance. And I understand where you're coming from with that. Um, <laughs> so uh, what, I, what I've come to learn through my experience is just what you were saying. I tell people, if you want to show me your priorities, you show me your budget, right? And so then if yeah. diversity is not invested in, then I understand that it's not a huge priority. But there's also this element of fear that comes with the possibility of change. And so if we do focus our diversity efforts in this way on this or these particular groups, then a more critical way of examining it is then I have to vacate some of the privileges that I receive by keeping things the way they are. Um, Michael, what has to happen to the best of your ability, because I'm not expecting anybody to really have a solution, yeah. but from, from your seat at the table, how do you get some of these folks to understand their privileges as it relates to them being resistant or showing some, some hesitancy around prioritizing these topics? Yeah. You know, I wish I had a, a glib answer for that, Sherard, I really do. Um, Me too, so. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, I look, I look at this problem personally, myself, right? It's like, you know, we've talked about this, uh, you know, uh, between the two of us uh, before. It's like, I have a lot of privilege, right? I, I, I know that, I see that, I, I've learned to see that. Um, and I can't give it away. Right, uh, right. I can't right. give it away. Uh, so all I can do is try to use it, and 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 I see, you know, and not everybody has reached that point, right? So again, it's like you're sitting in a room with a bunch of people with a bunch of privilege. They some of them may know they have it, and 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 some of them haven't even thought about it yet. Right. And and even the ones who have thought about it don't know what to do with it. Right. And I'll put myself in. I mean, on any given day knowing that I have all this privilege, I don't always know how to put it to use. Sure. So, um, so yeah, so how to change that? I, I mean, I think 
it, it sounds it sounds simple, but you you you've got to bring everybody to the point where they know they have that privilege and they agree that they should use it for the you know you've got to learn to use your superpowers for good, right? Yes. And and you know it. it it's 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 really frustrating for me to sit in a room with a bunch of 50 plus year old white men who've had privilege all their lives and have just amassed more and more and and not see them reach that altruistic phase of their life right i mean right. if they're if if they're a 20 year old kid scrambling to make do and and fight a fight for a place in the field and all that i'll cut them a lot of slack right sure. but i'm sorry you're now 50 60 years old you're at the top of your game you're at the seat of power it's like if now's not the time to turn around and say okay now what can i do with this for others then then there's a real problem in who we're selecting for power that's right yeah. can i can i please sorry, please i mean i've been thinking about this a lot right like why is it you know there's this kind of um what you find that's happening a lot now with the diversity and the equity i mean it's funny because every country has a different order they put it in they call it eid and <laughs> eid yeah. edi EDI yeah. yeah um as long as they're but, all in there yeah. but like you've got to bootstrap everyone goes through this bootstrap phase and what's happened whether it's the us or whether it's europe you know it's been first you know the women got their foot in the door mm -hmm. And because of the way that that privilege is set up, you know, women have white women have privilege over women of color, but they don't have privilege compared to white men. So there's been, but I think that that means that there's more sense of giving back, right? Like, or more awareness of the problems. And so, as women have come up the ladder, you start to see that that you know we're making headway with the men. The departments that have more women tend to be better socialized and more aware and move forward faster on issues of equity. Mm. And now, you know, we're trying to get the door open to get people of other axes, you know, whether it's color or I think, you know, I think I like to separate socioeconomic status because that's a kind of a different thing and it, and it crosses color lines as well, sure, sure. you know, and, um, and it's one I'm sensitive to because like, you know, my family wasn't. Thanks, certainly. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like, you know, so I'm more sensitive than you might think as a same, white woman and, and Mike as well, you know, we're from more working classy kind of backgrounds, right. like, um, we don't take this stuff for granted. Yeah, okay. but, but you know, the, the point is that I think a lot of the, the classic white male scientists going back to that kind of colonial model, it isn't in the model to try to make stuff better for other people. Yeah, right? can, can I just to Please. follow up on my earlier point and because I, I you know, listening to myself talk earlier, I, I, it sounded like I was trying to give these guys, you know, like a, a break, right? Because everybody's on an evolutionary path, which they are. But to be more practical about it, I think this stuff needs, I mean, at the policy level, part of the way we address it is you just make it part of the job. I mean, in writing and, and tie it to performance. So That's right. It, it's 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 in the it's in the list when you when you're doing a job hire and you're selecting people for That's these right. positions. It's like it, this is part of your job. There it is, right there, number four. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to come back to this list and to mm -hmm. assess how you're doing and decide whether you keep your job and whatever. It just we literally just have to write it into the yeah. job. And then yeah, if you don't like the way that job sounds because you don't want to do those things, well then you're not suited for the position. That's it. <laughs> right and and that's a policy thing that's yeah. just that's as, right that's just as practical and black and white as you can make yeah. it no that's pun right. intended. yeah and 
It also, I mean, you can do this at any level. You know, when we have our faculty hires, for instance, I mean, this is an important thing in my department, right? And so, for instance, uh, when we're interviewing in the faculty, we ask about, you know, this, you know, what have you done lately for diversity? How are you a good citizen other than what you have to do for your job description? And it's really funny, actually, because um, this is not just something pushed by the women, but like, you know, since this has changed, kind of a sea change in the department, the younger men that we've hired also feel this way, and actually some of the older men, to be fair. But what I always find interesting is the reaction of some of the candidates who, again, like especially coming from Europe, are not as familiar with this conversation. This, this conversation hasn't happened as widespread. And when they're asked by another white man on the committee, what have you done lately about diversity? Or what, what would you do since you're obviously not a diverse person? How would you help increase diversity? And there's just this stunned silence, you know, because they, they didn't even think they would be confronted with this. Whereas I think, at least from the US side, candidates are more versed, right, in these questions. Right. And, it's, yeah. you know. and, it, and it's interesting because, uh, so I haven't actually been the director that long. You know, sure. I, I took this position going on almost a little under two years ago. Right. But I came in, when I came in, uh, one of the things that was put on my plate was to address gender diversity. Yeah. So, it, so it, it is actually written into my job description. And I am assessed on, you know, hey, Michael, how, how's that going? You know, are you showing improvement? So I, which is great. I, the point of that comment is that this is great because I have every mandate I could hope for to take action, physical, concrete action, put my money where my mouth is. And That's so right. So but what's not written into the job description is a broader definition of diversity. That's right. So That's right. you know, there's progress to be made there, but yes. it's a step in the right direction. Right. And, and those are all wonderful points. And, it, you know, the, the heart of visceral change today, what we've evolved into is an organizational development sort of company consultancy that works exactly on that. The philosophy is that, training and development workshops are part of the overall conversation. I mean, we can't really shift an, an entity if, if we're all believing very different things in terms of the path to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But the idea is just that. To how can we center your professional frameworks around diversity, equity, and inclusion, given everything you all just discussed and we all just talked about? So, uh, so, so, so with that, Sarah, I want to come back to you. And I want to ask, um, well, I want to acknowledge first that, you know, uh, you know, last summer I got to partner with you and it was a fantastic experience period uh, ad advancing theoretical astrophysics it was a summer school uh, and it was my first time abroad you know so I checked off a lot of firsts I got my passport finally stamped for the first time you know I had my wedding ring on for the first time There's a lot of things that the, the confluence <laughs> was perfect you know uh, and so I'm grateful for you um, for those who don't know what it is, uh, tell people a little bit, so it's a two-parter for you. Tell people a little bit about what that was and then mm -hmm. talk about why you thought a diversity component was so important to the program. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I can answer that in one shot, right? Because I mean, it was from the start an idea that I wanted to, um, my so you know like you said right science and especially the hard sciences it's like um pretty bad in terms of diversity in all axes but you know when it comes to race it's even worse than gender and it's also like you said i mean at some point you just have to do something and it does get tiring hearing people just going on and on about it, the problem without actually trying things out and i'm i tend to just 
prefer to try to do stuff or see how things work and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, you know, but you try to figure out a path forward. So I had um, a grant, my research grant that I wrote. And in that grant, I actually said that I wanted to, um, to run a summer school program in my field, which is theoretical astrophysics. And now when you start to put words like theory into in front of any kind of science, then you can just basically divide by 10 whatever diversity you have. <laughs> Again, because of these stereotypes people have about theory means you have to, it's an inborn thing. You either have it or you don't, you sure. know, you gotta be, and that of course is crap, but this is a, it's a, you know, it comes on both sides. There's gatekeeping and people self-select out, you know, because they have, you know, their imposter syndrome where they feel like they're not smart enough. And so sure. what I thought was I wanted to try to tackle the pipeline problem in my field and I wanted to um, try to encourage a group of younger people, a diverse group of younger people to stay in theory or consider theory. So we had a meeting actually with, um, now you know Enrico Ramirez Ruiz mm -hmm. and uh, some other of uh, the usual suspects like <laughs> Nicole Lloyd Running and, <laughs> and a bunch of us, we got together actually in Copenhagen um, to have a, a science meeting where we also wanted to talk about some diversity stuff as well. And it was really interesting because we, we said, um, we, we kept it to a very kind of small and trusted group. And it was the first meeting that I've ever been at where we, we were really open about like diversity as well. And the idea was every person before they gave their science talk would also give a bit of their background, right? Like sure. how they got to this point. And it was extremely emotional, I mean, people like cried during, I mean, I, we were all like joking about passing the toilet paper around, but the idea of crying at a science meeting right. in front of your peers or like being right. vulnerable was just shocking, right? I mean, right. even when I talk about it, it's just like, oh my God, you know? Right. It was really crazy, but it, it had a huge impact on the young people there seeing all the senior people who they, you know, put up on a pedestal, it's like, we, you know, be real. And also to each other, like, I mean, we, we discovered how many similarities we had, how many struggles, you know, how many things. And so, so that was a really like transformative meeting, I think for a lot of us. Um, and we kind of created this group. And then the next step was like, let's do the summer school kind of thing. And I had already had that in my mind for years and had this budget. So that became the group that fed into being the teachers and the, the facilitators sure. uh, at the summer school. And then, you know, and we're all in this kind of computational data science, theoretical astrophysics group. So that was the theme, the science theme. Um, and it's very normal in our field to do these two week summer schools targeting usually students. But so we, we decided to pick students um, that were young enough, like you had, they had to have a bachelor's degree in physics because otherwise you can't really get too far with some of the material, but young enough to catch them try to encourage them to stay in the field, maybe pursue a PhD or get some slightly older students to just, you know, create a network and stuff. That's right. And, and um, we, we had, an, and then I had enough budget. I went fundraising, doing something like this is expensive, right? Yeah. Because if you really want to catch people from disadvantaged backgrounds um, as well, and I don't mean just underrepresented, but I mean, we were looking globally at, you know, people in like war zones, yes. You need to have money to fly them there. You need to put them up in the student dorms. You have to have food prepared and, you know, the whole thing. Right. So I, I was really pleasantly surprised by uh, how many people, how many groups, you know, were willing to contribute on top of the grant. And we managed to get the budget together. And um, 
and bring people together. We had 50 spots and we had over 250 applications and wow. our field is not that big. So the point is, right, if you could keep all those 50 young people in the field, that is a huge influx yes. in my, my, my area. You know, yes. if you go to international astronomy conferences, there's maybe 5,000 people in the world at a certain professional level doing this stuff. So right. it's not insignificant. And imagine if you could do it every year yeah. instead of every three right, years. Right, yeah, right. Whatever. Years, right? What if all 250 of the people that could applied come, could right. have come? And That's if you right. just keep doing this. So it was a pilot, right? Wow. And, um, and then we wanted to try to mix the science topics with empowerment, diversity. That's where you came in, right? Because I, you know, when you're bringing a group of people from all over the globe, you want to give them tools on like, not just, you know, in a negative way, but in a positive way about like, you're going to encounter some issues, racism, discrimination, recognizing it, building empathy, because everybody in that group, as you saw, had really different backgrounds and oh, experiences. Yes. Oh, and yeah. I have to say, it's been really amazing since, you know, uh, some of the students have now made it into PhD programs or, you know, they're, they're finding their, their way in the world, but they stayed together as like a cohort. They, you know, we created a group on Slack. They support each other. Great. And so we have to find models like this to just keep it going. The problem is it is expensive. So it comes yes. back again to some government people have to put the money where their mouths are, you know, and, yeah. and, and be committed to, to doing this stuff. But there are models that work, right? Right. Yeah. No. And, 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 uh, you know, you said a lot of profound things there and, you know, it was an experience for me. There were, I don't know how many countries represented, but there were a good amount of countries represented and like 25 or something, 25 or something like that. Right. And yeah, yeah. for me, it was, you know, it was like, for me realizing that, you know, my philosophy is that social justice intersects with all that we do. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll take that with me to the grave. But when we talk about to what degree, right, that's what really backed me up where, you know, the person from this country is like, I hear you, but this isn't really applicable to us here. And this person like, same here. And I'm like, wow. And so it gave me a new perspective that I carry into my work to this day. So it was a super humbling and uh, enriching experience for me. You talked about the vulnerability, right? And, uh, I'll never forget this. It was, it was the last workshop we had. I don't know who it was. I still see her in my head, but I, I don't know who she was. I don't have the name. We asked sort of why, so why do we do these workshops? Why is this important? And she said, because before we're scientists, we're people. And that quote sits on my website to this day. Now it says before we're professionals, we're people, because I had opened it up, but yeah. It came from before we're scientists, we're people. And so you talked about the, the power of that vulnerability. The amazing thing, though, and here's another question I have for you, is that since leaving that academy, thanks to the Enricos and the Coles, the Smadars, yourself, um, I've worked with this particular field more than any other field that I work with, period. And it's not even close, which I wasn't expecting. So both of you can answer, if you'd like, what does this say about the nature of DEI in astrophysics that so many different organizations want to work with a diversity professional in one way or the other? I'll let Mike keep. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, of course, I want to I wanna say something nice about like our field and that, uh, you know, we're quick to change or quick to recognize Star the problem, Trek. you know? <laughs> and I, there's some truth to that. I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, we are, uh, 
you know, it's a creative field and, and you know, where you have to be sort of um, flexible because you have to solve problems on the fly and whatever. And I think that, that maybe that mindset makes people a little quicker to change. I, I don't know, I, but I think a big part of it is the incoming generation. They are different. They are different and, and they're hitting walls, uh, you know, from, from the older generation, but it's not stopping them. And, no. and they are different and, and they are taking a different approach to, to how they do science and how they do science with each other as a community. And, they, and they're just not, they just don't accept it. They just don't accept this stuff. And I think it's, it's really cool, actually. Yeah, for sure. So I, I don't know what the magic switch that flipped, but uh, I, I, definitely, I definitely see a sea change in, in the old versus the new generation. That's exciting. Yeah, I was just thinking, I mean, it is, I, I honestly don't know, you know, I mean, I do think there is some element of the fact that we are kind of the dreamers maybe uh, in the field that, you know, a lot of us did come up on sci-fi and Star Trek and, you know, and don't forget Star Trek was such an example of yes. diversity propaganda. Oh, <laughs> you know, yes. It was always like the first black woman, yep. you know, it, it's aliens. Like, yeah, and, you know, <laughs> right? and they've expanded this now into like sexuality and diversity mm -hmm. and gender, you know, so they're, yeah. they're always like pushing the threshold. And I think that that's a really cool thing to like open kids' minds and people's minds to this stuff. So you have a lot of that. Of course, there's just a lot of people who are the complete opposite of that, yes. <laughs> like in any field. But yes. I, I think that it's a bit of that. Um, hundredth monkey effect too where enough people started talking about it combined with uh you know the the whole just societal awareness that this is an issue that it sort of rolled over but i have to say as a caution that this has brought you know a lot of what you're probably dealing with as well of like well you know like i love this term i don't know who coined it but virtue signaling and i've never seen more of it than i have since george floyd right and like the oh. whole i mean and that can be harmful as well, right? Because yeah. everybody's waving a flag, but like, again, you have to come back to what are you actually doing about it? And That's not right. just, you know. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I said I wanted to say something nice about our field and, and give them some credit, but you know, I, like I, I have to do the opposite yeah. as well because it, I mean, it's great if you see change happening in, in astronomy and in astrophysics. I like to think that we, I do see change as well. Yeah, sure. But I also know that there are, there are these really deeply ingrained uh, mythologies that, that hold us back. So, I mean, I don't think that there's anything special about our field in that sense. I, think, I feel like this is a change that's happening in society, thankfully. And, and we're responding to it as a community. And maybe we could be responding faster if we weren't blinded by these ideas of the, you know, the lone genius academic mm -hmm. and the old guy in a lab yes. and, yeah. and all that kind of crap we were talking about before. That's right. So, you know, I, I, I'm happy to see the change and I definitely, we got to give credit where credit is due, but I also don't think there's magic there. I feel like we're responding yeah. to a society change. Oh, I mean, it it pays to be critical. I mean, we, we have to be of the things we love, the things we like, the things we are a part of. I mean, <clears throat> you know, you know, James Baldwin said, you know, that it's, it's because he, because he loved America, which why he reserved the right to, to criticize her, you know, and um, we want to see these things get better. And the longer we continue to ignore maybe some of these happenstances, the more we become part of the problem and the perpetuation of that silence. Um, so I, I, 
I appreciate you searching for the nice thing to say and then the nice thing coming out critically. I mean, that's, <laughs> for me, that's flattering. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I want to bounce back to you, Michael, actually. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> so I found that sort of, uh, is, is SRON the acronym or is it S-R-O-N? So I, I say SRON. It's, okay. it it's an acronym, but it's a, it's a Dutch acronym. So if I set out the, the words in Dutch, <laughs> sound even weirder. So I usually just say Esron. Esron, okay. So, so I found that Esron's mission is to, quote, right, to bring uh, about breakthroughs in international space research. Um, I like that. If I was overseeing your, your mission, I was going to work through that with you. I'd be like, okay, I, I like where this is headed. Um, uh, the extension of that quote, though, there is one that's found at the bottom of the website, and I'm not going to go too much into it because it has some decent length to it, but it, yeah. It affirms for me, and I'm guessing this mission existed before you. So uh, it affirms for me that the mission was not necessarily written to center diversity and inclusion. Um, and one thing we try to do when we create mission statements or help folks create mission statements is to find ways to use certain language that allows yeah. you to play with diversity and inclusion. And that extension doesn't afford that. But the statement by itself does. If we consider the state of space and, and astrophysics, this idea of breaking through, right? Creating breakthroughs. Yeah. So I wonder, Michael, if you think that there are any unique ways to look at that particular mission statement in order to highlight the importance of diversity. And inclusion. So I actually love that mission statement because it is uh, as vague as it can be. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's, it's great. As you say, it's a, it's a great sort of uh, high level, you know, uh, you know, uh, goal. But it's not specific, which not means, specific. Right. Which means how we do that, how we achieve those breakthroughs, what it means, what a breakthrough means, is up to us. You know, we get to bring that. Uh, we get to bring that uh, that definition. And exactly. you know, one of the things I like about my job is that it, while I get to be director, and I only get to be director for a while, uh, you know, uh, I get to, I have some say. That's right. That comes back to you know what we were saying. You know, it's like you've got privilege. You, you know, how do you use it? When do you get a chance to use it? Well, that's, this is part of, you know, the attractive aspect of the, a job like this is that's that right. you get to say how we achieve breakthroughs and, and what it means for the field. And, it, you know, it, it's not just about a Nobel Prize or some other big, you know, very concrete, uh, you know, award like that. It can that's be right. as simple as, you know, when I took over as director, we had this many uh, diverse staff and when I took over when I left we had more right, that's right. you know so that's uh, yeah I, I mean that and I don't think that's true just for my institute I, I sure. think that's true for you know the whole field that's it's right just, you know my my focus you know is, is on our institute for the most part right so uh, I want to fire a question back at the both of you <clears throat> as we begin to close out um, this interview uh, I just want to double back one more time with the sort of gender versus racial component. And, you know, that was something that I learned when I was there um, in my various discussions with other figureheads and, and, and leaders in their own right. Um, you know, it seems to be this, this negotiation of a either or and not a, not a both and. And so what that does is sort of compromises women of color specifically when we start talking about, well, the issue is a woman's issue not a race issue, but women of color fall into both categories if we consider intersectionality. I'd love to hear your perspectives, and this is just an open question, you can take it where you'd like, on sort of what this discussion means in the Netherlands when we start 
talking about race and it's pushed back with gender. We talk about gender and it's pushed back with race. Just it's an, it's open. I don't have. A, I'm not guiding this particular question. I just want to know what what is what does that mean for work for life for the balance etc. What does it mean for? What does it, it mean for, for the status of, of work and someone trying to apply for a job? What does it mean for the yeah, simple that's livelihood? That's of intersectionality. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh, um, go ahead. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a... Well, I, yeah, I mean, you put your finger on the, you know, what it means is that it's a tougher road to hoe, as they would say, uh, you know, in, in Kentucky. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Uh, and that, I mean, that's true that in the Netherlands or the U.S., right? Interse intersectionality brings additional challenges, right? That, 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 that's the reality of it. I, I try to be more positive about it in the sense that because you can get people, you can, gender is, is sort of more on people's radar and they're thinking about that already. You can use that as leverage to try to open it up and, and bring, you know, the, the intersectionality in. But it's not there yet. Sure. It's, it's just not there yet. It's certainly not in the Netherlands. And, and that's, that's literally a conversation that, that's happening now. Like, right. oh, we need to be, I mean, you know, two years ago when I started this job, it was, there, you know, as I said, I walked in the door and, you know, gender diversity was, was front and center on my to-do list. Uh, and, and two years later, now we're having a conversation about how do we open that up and how it's not just about women or whatever. So, this is lagging behind the U.S., but it is it is happening. So, sure. yes, put some positive spin on it, I guess. It's yeah. a, but it, but there's a there's a way to go. Yeah, I mean, I think that that intersectionality, and particularly for women of color, and I would also say, you know, other intersections like you know uh, LGBTQ of color, or you know, sure. anything where you're going to have like double or triple uh, hits against you and discrimination, yes. right? Um, it's really shocking in Europe, right? I mean, and I guess the U.S. has it as well, but in Europe, the statistics are so low in our field. Mm. We're talking about, you know, that I can count on one hand the women of color in my field in the entire country, right? And that's why it shows how urgent it is to, you know, bring up the numbers, but you have to do it at the same time that you manage to educate you know, the, the problem is, right, like if you bring people in and then they're treated terribly, um, that's not good for anybody, right? So it's like you have to have these parallel ways of tapping the problem, like getting more students of color, more women of color coming in. And in the Netherlands, of course, color means something different than it does in the U.S., that's right? right? The, the, the color axis in, in, in the Netherlands tends to be, it's colonial, but you have um, people who are Black Caribbean, you know, from slave mm -hmm. descent from you know, uh, Suriname, Curaçao, Antilles, you know, places like that. And then you have, um, you have nor people from North Africa more in Turkey and Muslim. That's right. Uh, and, and then of course, people who are Indian and mixed race and things like that. So it's, it's really- It's a more diffuse uh, Indonesian. target in a sense. Yeah, oh. it's, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a really different, you're dealing with a very different cultures of color than you think about in the US. And that's why I'm saying, you know, I try to look at what happens best practice in the States and like, what can we port over, but we have to make it applicable to the particular cases there. And, um, and it's, it is really difficult. And um, I think the best thing that we can do is, is try to train the top levels to see this as an important problem, to put money into the problem, 
Um, and I'm just going to say, and this is my one grouse publicly, the Dutch government, uh, the ministry right now is doing this big thing called the Divert National Diversity Action Plan. And they've got like people from all over and all the different, you know, stakeholders and they're coming together and blah, blah. Ask me what the budget is. What's the budget? There's no budget. <laughs> but it's like they're asking all of us to put our time in, to come up with a policy, to do whatever. And the argument when you say, but there's no budget, is like, oh, but if we come up with this policy, then we know what. Blah, blah, blah. But it, it really is backwards, in my opinion. And I mean, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this out loud, but I think it needs to be said, right? Well, I'll, I'll say it yeah. too. I, I mean, uh, you know, I sit in these, these conversations, uh, you know, in the senior management and we talk about the plan and, you know, we want to have, we want to have a plan and we want to agree on a, you know, you know, what to do. And, and, you know, that's fine. I, policy, policy is just a tool like anything else. But at the end of the day, you have to back it up. You know, action means resources, right? And, and, I don't, nobody, you know, I don't like to just boil it all down to money, but but you, know, <clears throat> you have to put resources into these programs, and yeah, and so I I often, you know, I I, I don't want to talk about philosophy all the time. I want right. to talk about mm -hmm. what are we going to do, what concrete things are we going to do, and how much can we spend on it, and you know, we can argue about whether it's too much or or or, or not enough, or it should be more next year, or whatever. But let's you know until it's more than zero it's all just talk that's right and that's right. and you know, and as long as we move beyond talk i'm i'm in right mm -hmm. and it's right. If, if you're just here to talk and make you yeah. know uh, pronouncements and uh, what's the word you use uh, uh, virtue signaling oh, per yeah. performative yeah. yeah if it's just performative uh, you know i'm going to go find something concrete that's, i can that's right i'm so here to check the box right but i think at the same time like by trying to especially like the stuff that we do with kids you know at least by bringing up the pipeline you've got to get the role models there but let me let me, let me say something positive so that we're not just banging on on, <laughs> on the politicians i do see movement right like the, sure. the, the programs that, that that sarah has you know talked about that she's been doing out of you know those are getting you know visibility and you know, there are there's conversation about oh these are the sort of things that that we should do on a national scale um they have brought back even just in in the last year uh because of some of the conversations that have been going on about based triggered a lot by some of the stuff going on in the u.s certain funding instruments have been brought back you know to target the the you know the these migration background as they're often referred to you know you know, uh, people. So, you know, change happens, man. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. can happen. So it's not all just people spinning their wheels and no. you know and talking. But God, you know, sometimes I wish it would go faster. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. For sure. Don't we all? It's uh, uh, we can talk about uh, DEI in this in this field, astrophysics and the world, and in the Netherlands, you know, all day. And I'm so happy that we were able to out some really rich dialogue in this um my last question for you all is so you you recognize where some of these disparities exist in the field um you've seen it firsthand you've experienced it from various levels and various levels of intersectionality so uh if you were to to sort of write a a letter it doesn't have to be in detail to sort of the marginalized 
sort of astronomers and, and folks who want to work in physics who are coming up now, right, um, about what to expect or how to maybe trudge forward, what are some things you would say to them? I actually struggle with this a lot in the sense that, you know, um, some things that have been happening haven't been pretty in our field recently. I mean, there's the good and the bad. And, you know, I also think, as Mike was saying, he's right, you know, the younger generation, I mean, we, we like, this was like the expectation was like, you give it all up, you put, take any crap that's handed to you because you want the dream of being a scientist, right? And that's crazy, right? This is, you're a person, you should have a life outside work, you should have all this stuff. And it is changing, but I sometimes struggle with, like, do I tell people that it's still going to be a struggle? And, you know, do you want to follow your dream? And I, I think it is not going to be easy. It's not easy to become a scientist, no matter what color or gender you are, sure. in the sense that, I mean, I, actually, I should take away the word scientist and just say maybe like academic in some sense, because it is still you know, a kind of a lifestyle that, you know, is basically based on some monastic idea mm -hmm. in some sense, right, of working in a very, you know, specific direction. And you, your life opens up a lot once you get past, as you know yourself very soon, Gerard, <laughs> you gotta get past, it's like, the, you sort of gotta get your creds. And then there's a lot of possibilities, but up to the point of getting your credits, just like it's, it's sort of what I often use the sports analogy, which I know is kind of eh, cause it doesn't work for everybody, but it's like, you don't go to train for the Olympics and think it's going to be easy. And in sure. some sense, it's like, you know, if you set a goal for yourself, there's going to be some level of challenge. And, and I just try to tell people that challenge isn't always bad and stress isn't always bad. Right. It's how much challenge and how much stress. And you have to find these boundaries for yourself that it doesn't become unhealthy. That's right. But change and growth come with, you know, un discomfort, right, in a lot of different ways. And I think, um, you know, it's, there's, there's things that, like, are gonna, you're going to face if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, if you're a woman of color, if you're mm -hmm. LGBT of color, you know, these are just undeniable. I think that the um, keeping your eye on the dream, right, and like thinking about the amazing things that you can do with your life, the creativity and the and the uh, ability to change stuff and make the field better is in itself like really fulfilling. Um, so it's like you just have to put the time in and there are going to be difficult times, I think, like, you know, and for anybody, but maybe that is what gets us all through. Like, I mean, I know that's what's gotten me through is like on sure. my work days, it is still thinking about like the cool stuff, right? Whether it's the science or the people that's right. that keeps me wanting to do this. That's right. Yeah, I'm not sure what to add to that. I mean, I'm <laughs> uh, oh. still there, man. I'm still here. Yeah, I can still hear you. I think we, I saw you frozen on my end too. Thought we uh, okay. There we go. We're good. Oh, there it goes. Oh, yeah, sorry, man. for a second. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure what to add to to Sarah's comment. I mean, and to be very blunt, you know, I feel like in a way I'm the last person to give advice to to somebody from from you know more marginalized background. But so, I mean, the, you know, the advice I you know the the thing I would say to, to them, I would say to anybody, which is that you know, it's, it's not an easy road. Sure. You shouldn't expect it to be, but you shouldn't also accept, expect it to 
to, to be harder than it need be. I mean, you know, it's not supposed to be suffering and, you know, you're not, yeah. you know, this idea that you have to go through some hazing, academic right. hazing to read, you know, that, that's not what it's supposed to be. So don't accept that. Right. I would tell them to, to build their network of their peers because nobody gets, nobody gets out, you know, of this, this stuff by themselves. That's right. You know, we got here through, you know, an army, of, there's an army of people standing behind mm -hmm. us that helped us every, along every step of the way. That's right. And, and you need, you need to put that, put that team together. And, you know, I stay in this field. I have stayed in this field because of the connections and the people I have and that I've picked up along the way. That's right. And you need that. So, so, you know, look for those allies. And I don't just mean, you know, in the, in the diversity sense, I just mean, look for your team. Of course. Yes. And actually, maybe just one other thing I would add that remind me that I, mean, I think one of the things that I've noticed as I've become more of a mentor, you know, as I've grown up right, and start mentoring younger people yeah. is that people who need mentoring the most are the ones least often to seek it out or ask for it. Right. Because, you know, either you think you don't deserve it or somebody wouldn't give it to you. And I've mm -hmm. seen this time and time again. Um, and I think it's really important to seek out allies and recognize that, you know, senior people more often than not are of goodwill, you know, and, and if you have a bad experience, it doesn't mean it's all going to be bad and you just find a better person, to, you know, so it's really important to find the good people because there are a lot of them out there. There are people who want to help. You know, that's absolutely right. I mean, none of us got to where we are today by ourselves. And, you know, I think there was... we're white men. I mean, there were no women above me practically. Sure. So, you know, it doesn't have to be someone who looks like you even, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Certainly. You know, and, yeah. you know, and that is something that we all have to own eventually and utilize as a strength and not a deficit. And so... I'm really grateful for you all joining us on the chopping block and, and, and sharing your insights before I let you go. Uh, tell the people where they can get in touch with you, any social media, any podcasts, any blogs, anything, any publications where folks can get a, get a, get a, get in touch with you and get a hold of you. So I have a website. That's my research group website. So, I mean, I think you can get through to the university of Amsterdam, but if you just go to www.saramarkoff, my name is spelled funny, S-E-R-A-M-A-R-K-O-F-F.com. Um, and my, the young people, in my group blog on it. So, and then we usually put links to social media and so on. So, yeah. And uh, well, I don't have a personal website, but the, the Institute does and you can find me there. You can find my email address uh, on esron.nl. And uh, I'm also on Twitter. So you can always, uh, you know, fire off a, <laughs> a DM or something. I'm wisespace nl. Um, but uh, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm more of a social media Luddite, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm out there kind of. Well, I, I, don't, I, don't I don't tweet a lot, but I, I definitely scan it. I, I find it's a really interesting way to kind of see people at all different stages, you know, you know, <coughs> in, the, in the field. So that way I don't find, I, it's, I don't find myself only talking to a bunch of old white guys. <laughs> That's right. Just keeping notifications on, I guess. <laughs> Nothing else. Thank you all so much, ladies and gentlemen, friends, family. Sarah Markoff, Michael Wise, Sherrod Robbins, you're on the chopping block at visceralchange.org.